The sound of Dinosaur Jr. is that of three frustrated men becoming progressively irritated with each other, trying to drown each other out with volume and ferociousness from their rock and roll instruments. Joseph Donald Mascus Jr., better known as Jay Mascus, is the anti-rock god leader of Dinosaur Jr. He didn't care if punk rock in 1986 wasn't supposed to have guitar solos. He had long hair, a t-shirt accompanied by an open button-down shirt to keep him warm, not even a flannel, and hippie beads. He belonged nowhere. Lou Barlow could have been in Revenge of the Nerds, but you wouldn't have even noticed him. He's the original and current bass player, also the muse of Jay Mascus's voodoo doll. With every fuzzed-out guitar lick, a piece of Lou's heart is seared with a lit stick pulled from the fire, much to the sadistic satisfaction of Lou's soul. Or is it Jay's soul? Meanwhile, punk rock hippie, if there ever was such a thing, Patrick Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, not only played drums between these two oddballs, but refereed the silent warfare slowly brewing between Lou and Jay. Sound like a fun band? It wasn't. But I've always loved him. I've seen Jay Mascus play music at least ten times in various configurations of Dinosaur Jr., Jay Mascus in the Fog, or just plain solo. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Nathan Palin. May I present to you another episode of... This Game Could Be Your Food. Thank you, listeners, for your return presence of my podcast, This Band Could Be Your Food. As I said, I'm Nathan Palin. Today, we discuss a band that is very near and dear to my heart, Dinosaur Jr. For those of you who know me, I am first and foremost a guitar player. I grew up in Janesville, Wisconsin, a blue-collar town known for its factories and chain restaurants. When I grew up there, we also had a pretty decent punk rock scene. In fact, it was the only thing us high school kids had for entertainment, and it was more than sufficient. However, I was listening to a little Van Halen and Metallica as I was taking my guitar lessons at the mall, trying to make sense of all the scales my teacher had me learn. I couldn't really bridge the gap between all of these mundane orders of notes and scales, and the difference between that and tangible music with heart and soul was just like a bridge away. Well, enter Dinosaur Jr., with no exaggeration, I learned how to solo by playing along to Dinosaur Records. It was still punk rock, but not that simple punk pop of lookout bands that littered our Knights of Columbus and VFW halls. These guys were complex, melodic, and loud. Their impact on me as a musician and songwriter has had a lasting effect. And so, when my old friend from high school, Eugene Kim, came to visit New York City taking a string of pavement shows with me. We thought it fitting for us to watch the recently released Dinosaur Jr. biopic Freak Scene and talk all about this group who we both saw for the first time together in Chicago, Lollapalooza, 1993, 30 years ago. Holy crap. 30 years ago. Well, there you go. Presenting Eugene and me discussing the great Dinosaur Jr. Gene, tell me the first time you heard Dinosaur Jr. First time was 
during the Where You Been album release. Um, Did you see him on MTV? Probably MTV, yeah. Yeah. 120 minutes or yeah. one of those alternative late night video shows. Yeah. How did you how did you get to see 120 minutes? Were you like me? I usually wasn't allowed to stay up that late, so I would always videotape them and watch them later. Yeah. I think that's kind of what our generation kind of did. Because it was much, like Sunday night at like 10 o'clock. Yeah. Something 11, like that. It was like 11, 11, yeah. 11 to 1 in the morning. Yep. And we were the we were the only people in the house that knew how to program the VCR to work, right? <laughs> Our parents usually made us do it. Yeah, pretty much. I don't think my parents cared about you know watching anything yeah. that needed to be recorded, whereas yeah. we were pretty assessed with watching everything because you know if Good. you missed it, you missed it. Yeah, <laughs> there was no streaming. Pretty much back in the nineties, right? So yeah, and it's not in Janesville. We had access to a lot of like college radio stations. Correct. Right. So. If we were going to listen to underground music, it was pretty much MTV. Ironically enough, that doesn't even play videos anymore. Correct. But at the time, that was our source of finding music. Yeah, that, that was the source. So I don't know exactly how Dinosaur Jr. came up, you know, in, in terms of, you know, looking for someone to listen to. But yeah. I think I probably heard the name enough times and it was featured in various magazines and stuff like that. Totally. That eventually we... Uh, I decided to check it out, but the first video I remember seeing was Start Chopping. Yep. Yeah, was that the first one you remember? That's the first one I remember seeing, too. Yeah. I saw that on MTV. Yep. Yeah. And I saw Out There Later, which I think actually correct. came out first, but it seemed like Start Chopping was... Actually, I found out that Get Me was the first video that was released for that album. It really? was actually released prior to the album coming out. Oh. Now, did I just see that Matt Dillon <laughs> directed that video? Yeah, apparently. I don't know if I've ever seen this video. I don't remember seeing it at the time. I never the seen 90s. it. the 90s. That's kind of a, seems like an odd song to start your album release with. For sure. It's not like, especially at the time, it was kind of a different sounding, you know, more of a kind of a, the country vibe, Dinosaur Jr. Which is what how they really wanted to present themselves in, yeah. in the, from the very get-go, right? They What did... Jay Maskus say he wanted it to be like a, a like an electric, like the loudest country band. Yeah, they called. I think they called it ear bleeding country. Ear bleeding country, yeah. which is what their uh, greatest hits is called in uh, in the UK. Okay, which so. is so ahead of its time. This yeah. is before alt country even started. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. No one is even thinking about. It. So yeah, I mean, I guess if you even listen to their earlier stuff, you strip away all the the crazy feedback and distortion. There's really, there is like a little bit of a country song in there. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it's uh, melody driven. And I mean, I would say the one thing that uh, isn't country about it is that the lyrics don't really tell that linear of a story. But, you know. Correct. The riffs are, the riffs are there. Uh, my first introduction was my friend uh, Andy Cardoni as I was about to head out on a long road trip. Like, I think I was, I was driving from Wisconsin to Indiana for something. And he gave me fossils. Oh, so that okay. was the first thing I heard. Now fossils is a collection. They, they, I don't. They haven't even re-released it, but it was a collection of their first three singles, starting with the in the SST era. So it, it doesn't include their their self-titled first record, which is a weird one. Um, but it has little furry things, and it has in a jar, and, and 
Freak Scene, and then a couple of covers, three covers actually, which was uh, Just Like Heaven, which they released as a single, which was like one of their first hits yep. in the UK, which was strange for a band at that time to cover a song that was current because nobody was doing that. It was, yeah. 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 We sort of brought that up in the movie. Eugene and I just watched Freak Scene, the movie, so we're all caught up. Caught up on yeah. all their funny old videos. And- totally. And it actually shows... <laughs> When Jay Maskus and original and current bassist Lou Barlow actually get in a fight on stage. Now, before before this time, it was I could never find it on the internet. It was like folklore that these two got into a fight on stage, and that was the last show that they played. Uh, and, it, and they briefly showed it in a Sonic Youth video, like they show the moment where they kind of clash, but they don't ever actually show the whole thing. So. For me, I was so excited to see this movie because I've been dying to see these two <laughs> yeah. fight it out on, on stage. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they did. Do we know for sure that he quit after that, though? Or was he, was it kind of later on, like at the end of the tour, that they just kind of parted ways? That I don't know. The movie was, the documentary kind of is a little iffy on a lot of the, they kind of jump around just a little bit yeah. back and forth, and it was kind of hard to follow certain things. But. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 hard to say. So, uh, we'll talk all about it because that's the most fun stuff to talk about with Dinosaur Junior. Uh, we're gonna go right into the food. Uh, we have it cooking. Uh, Eugene, give me your honest opinion. What what foods were you thinking about that Dinosaur Junior could be? Did you have anything that came to mind immediately? There was nothing that came to mind immediately because I was, I guess I was thinking more regional, you know, they're kind of from Amherst. Yeah. And so I was kind of thinking stuff that maybe is more Boston related than kind of Massachusetts related, but I couldn't think of anything that uh, really stuck out, but it felt like, you know, some sort of meat product would be uh, appropriate. Yeah. Like, Like a prehistoric, like dinosaur kind of meat. Yep. So that's um, that's where I was at. It's one of those bands where the name really signifies sort of who they are and their whole image. Like it's really cavemanny. All of the little characters that appear in their t-shirts and on stage and all these like super weird, they look like they live in a cave all the time. Yes. And uh, you know, we're talking about a band of uh three boys. They started when they were like in their 17 17- 18 age group they had a hardcore band before that called deep wound where they were playing super mega hardcore punk a la black flag and minor threat and like that was what was hot at that moment in time in like 1981 and then that scene shriveled up pretty quickly uh, and not to mention that like, Massachusetts was home to a lot of those hardcore bands. Like they sort of had their own stamp and identity as being kind of muscle headed, uh, tough guys causing a lot of trouble. So when that whole thing collapsed and then all of the hardcore bands who wanted to keep playing music, they sort of had to shift into a, a new genre. And so you've got minor threat turns into Fugazi. All these bands that are doing that turn into something else. Black Flag starts playing really slow, sludgy music. And the drummer of Deep Wound, Jay Mascus, 
decides that he wants to make this ear bleeding country music. Hires on Lou Barlow, who is the singer of Deep Wound um, and guitar player, much to his surprise because Lou was pretty sure that Jay hated him. So he was surprised to get the call. And then they brought in uh, the local social drummer guy, Murph, the partier, the guy who uh, everyone loves. And then that brings us Dinosaur Jr. And initially they were just called Dinosaur. But there was another band called Dinosaur. They sounded like this. The Dinosaurs were a super group from the Bay Area that featured a bunch of dang hippies. Peter Albin of Janis Joplin's old band, The Holding Company. Spencer Dryden of Jefferson Airplane. Robert Hunter, longtime lyricist of The Grateful Dead. And other assorted hippies and other hippie bands would stop in and play. They didn't even put out a record until 1988, so I guess this was what was going on since Dinosaur Jr. just put out its second record, You're Living All Over Me. And this is when the cease and desist order came in. Carry on. Well, Dinosaur had two albums out entitled Dinosaur before they had to attach a junior to the back of their their name just so they could continue on. And uh, my friend Eugene here has a couple copies of those Dinosaur records before they had the junior on. Yeah, I was kind of lucky to find those out in the wild. Yeah, (laughs) right on. Right before the uh, vinyl the the big vinyl resurgence that we live in today where you can't find anything now yeah it's no fun <laughs> record shopping anymore exactly spending 75 bucks on something <laughs> you really want uh so yeah the band uh dinosaur so i instantly thought of barbecued meat and there's a lot of directions you can go in so you sort of have to pare it down into something um i felt it should be something cow versus pig because Dinosaur Jr. has a cow as one of their very famous t-shirts famously worn by Chris Novoselic when Nirvana was opening up for Dinosaur Jr. at that big Reading festival right when Nirvana was just starting to hit the big leagues. So that was a, I think that was a big moment where Dinosaur Jr. became visible to a lot of the world. Like that, that t-shirt was just such a, fun loving kids sort of t-shirt like it almost looks like it's you know some skit off of uh sesame street or the muppet show or something like that yeah for sure especially a name like dinosaur jr too kids love that stuff yeah i'm not sure exactly why they started cows on all their t-shirts i think whoever their friend the artist that was designing a lot of their like album work or um t-shirts and stuff like that i think she just probably Drew kind of cute looking cows, so for sure. Stuck. Yeah, but like uh, I was just at their show uh, a few days ago, and mm. uh, at the merch, the merch, uh, at the merch stand, they still have a lot of T-shirts with cows on them. So. Do they? So it's cows. <laughs> so it's cows. It's got to be cow. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of directions you can go go in with cow, and we'd sort of talked about the beef brisket, but that's a little illogical for where. Uh, which cooking facilities I have here in New York city. I don't have a smoker, so I can't do a smoker, but beef brisket would have been high up on the list, but instead we're going even more cave Manny. We are doing beef back ribs in the oven, oven cooked. So dinosaur junior is a beef back rib.
Yeah. Dinosaur Jr., they start what year? The, well, the first album came out in 85, right? Yeah. So I don't know if they, was that 84? Maybe the one 83, 84, that sounds yeah. about right. Do we know about the record label? So it's Homestead Records, right? The yes. First album. Homestead Records. This guy, what was it, Gerald Gerald uh, Cooley? Let me... <laughs> Let to look that I'll, up. <laughs> yeah. I'm not far off. Gerald Cosloy was running Homestead Records as of 1985, based out of Long Island, New York, as a sub-label of music distributor Dutch East India Trading. Apparently, it was known for not paying its artists and not spending any money on promotion. I think this is probably why Dinosaur Jr. later went on to SST Records, another label well-known for not paying its artists. Anyways, Mr. Cosley was later co-founder of the indie giant mega label Matador Records that put out, I don't know, name an indie rock band. Pavement, Yola Tango, Bell Sebastian, GBV, Spoon, dot, dot, dot. Now Cosley knows about the beginnings of Dinosaur because he used to put on shows back in the Boston area, where they were from, and Deep Wound was on a lot of these bills. So, Dino's happening, Gerald has a label, dot, dot, dot. Wanted to sign them for a, at least a two-record deal. And Jay said, no. He says, I just want to wait and see. We'll put out the first one. Uh, they put out the first one, and I think they have a budget of maybe $400. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It's a very difficult album to really digest <laughs> in your first sitting. Yes. It's it's very it's a very different sounding album compared to the rest of the discography. Yeah. Well, they were kind of discovering who they were in that first record. Yes. So they were just throwing all these different styles of music together and uh, not recording it very well. But they did their best. I remember I, I, own, I actually owned that record and sold it and then bought it again because the first time I had it, I could listen, I listened to it maybe twice. And I just couldn't, couldn't get through it. So I believe the reissued re versions of that album added... Was it "Forget the Swan"? Yes, as as their first as the first song, but like the original album did not have that. Yeah, it was "Bubs of Passion," right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. "Forget the Swan," great tune, but they put that out as a single initially. You know, they they sort of pulling a they're sort of pulling a pitchfork, going back in history and changing their their <laughs> track that's listings. A, that's a good that's a good way of describing that. That's, yeah, yeah, because they did it with that one, and then then they when they re released. Uh, you're living all over me. They also they replaced the Peter Frampton cover with uh, "Just Like Heaven," which they had released "Just Like Heaven" as a single. So, seeing as they weren't going to re-release that uh, Fossils collection that was on SST Records, which was their later record label, anyways, they went back and and erased the Peter Frampton. And I know Jay said he wasn't really happy with that, but I think that that cover "Show Me the Way" is pretty rad. Yes, yes, for for that. For Peter, for Peter Frampton song, yeah, <laughs> definitely, totally. And you yeah. sort of hit me that they they released some other singles and had some other covers that I don't think ever made it to CD, right? You you showed me like you have this uh, Dinosaur Junior seven inch box. Oh yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, what isn't there's a weird cover on there? <laughs> don't you remember? <laughs> 
I can't think of it. That was, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look it up. What you're listening to here is Dinosaur Jr. covering the song by the Birds, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better, a song that was recorded and initially intended to be on a Birds tribute compilation, album, CD, whatever. It never made it onto it, but I do think it made it as a B-side uh, for one of their releases. Not sure one. Not sure which one, but, but Gene can listen to this anytime he wants. If he just remembers that he has it, carry on. So... It's funny that that band was uh, doing a lot of cover songs, but they were they were always sort of pushing the mold as to to what music was supposed to be because this is when you know when when punk stopped being hardcore. But I mean, hardcore was sort of this blip, whereas punk beforehand was, you know, the Ramones and Blondie and Television and everything that was coming out of the CBGBs, the Clash. But every every band sort of had their own stamp. It wasn't like a unified single sound. Uh, it was more about how do we make our own type of music? And if it is not what is out there, then we get to call that punk. And Dinosaur Jr., their version was having these blistering guitar solos, which at that time, nobody was doing guitar solos anymore. Yeah, that's for sure. I, th I think they helped kind of bridge that gap of, you know, everyone coming off the hair metal days and, mm. you know, switching over to alternatives. I believe like, Dinosaur Jr. and like Jane's Addiction were yeah. both, you know, two two bands that kind of took the uh, the guitar solos and all the craziness of guitar rock and sure. kind of shifted it over to a uh, punk rock rock aesthetic. Totally. So, yeah. I mean, I think you know, as for Dinosaur Jr., I think you know, you got to figure about at least a third of their fans are like guitar players. It's true. Right, definitely a guitar player. There are band. definitely a lot of guys that you know are, you know, air guitaring at their, yeah. at their concerts. I'm so. always I'm always surprised at how many people like Dinosaur Junior. Like I just saw them in Portugal at the Sound Primavera Festival, and and they were maybe the second band to play for the day, and so it was like you know, bright sunshine, but the place was packed, thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, to this day, you know, they still sell out their shows. I mean, they're only playing like maybe like clubs that hold like a thousand people. Yeah. But, you know, they can have a good living just kind of touring, touring all these, you know, college towns. Still. Totally. It, yeah. it works for them. Uh, but I mean, their guitar, their guitar loving bassist has like led to all these Jay Mascus released guitars. Like he's got a couple of guitars that are, you know, released through Fender. One of them Squire, which... I think it's adorable because it's like a $300 jazz master that everybody who's played it says it's just as good as any like name brand Fender. Like Squire, if you guys don't know, Squire is sort of like the generic version. It's not generic, but it's it's like the subclass version for people who don't want to spend as much money on their guitars um, and sometimes get pigeonholed as being not quite as good a quality. You know, maybe the wood isn't as good or whatever, but everyone who's played those guitars says it's they're great. So I can't play one because they didn't make a left-handed version. If they did, I would I would definitely own one. Just saying. Yeah. So in the documentary, you know, Jay man Jay mentions that the uh, he wanted to actually get a Fender Fender Stratocaster, right? Yep. And uh, at the time, the Jazzmaster was what he could afford. Which yep. I'm not sure if that was the case back then. <laughs> that the Jazzmasters were cheaper, but 
I must be. Yeah. Well, who was playing Jazz Masters those days? That's true. This yeah. is before um, Nirvana. Yeah. yeah, Nirvana, they played, he played Fenders too. Yeah, he played like, Mustangs. And no, what was the other one? A Jaguar. Jaguar, yeah. Yeah. Must, yeah. But those guitars were not considered cool at the time. I think that at that point, everybody was either playing like a BC Rich or a Kramer or a, something like that, <laughs> some type of a metal guitar. That's true. Yeah. But now those those daddies go for quite quite a bit of coin. Correct. Yeah. Do you have any of those? I do not. No. I have a Jazzmaster. I have a, a Telecaster. Mm. Which, which is Jay Mascus's favorite guitar to play during these recordings. Okay. These days. Yeah. So live, he plays the Jazzmaster. On record, he plays the Telecaster. All right, enough gear talk. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that surprises me about Dinosaur Jr. is that uh, a lot of girls like Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, that's uh, that's the interesting thing, because my wife always mentions that only guys go to Dinosaur Jr. shows. Not true. But like, I feel like even in the 90s, there were a lot more girls that... You know, we're into Dinosaur Jr. because it was a little bit more kind of a popular sound. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the lyrics were a little bit kind of more heartfelt. Yeah, they were tender. <laughs> tender lyrics. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So, anyway, so this band, back to their history. So they put out Living Living All Over Me, which is, uh, I heard, produced by two different people. They recorded half of the session, maybe all of it in New York City. But they had one guy named Wharton who they had mentioned had such strange ways of recording the band. And it's sort of what gives it its own sound. And Dinosaur Jr. themselves are a little back and forth about, I don't know if that was exactly what they wanted, but it's what they got. And they ended up happy with it. And, but I mean, Dinosaur Jr. has never been an easy band to record because I understand that they would go in the studio and still turn up their amps to a million which is not necessary when you're in a recording studio because you've just got a microphone sitting on it and you can manipulate it to have it sound just about any way you want to. But they just said, no, this is how we sound, <laughs> which continues on to this day. I know when they play live, sound men are usually pretty upset at the fact that they have to navigate his four stacks, three stacks on his side. He also has another stack of amplifiers over on Lou Barlow's side so that Lou can hear him. <laughs> so it's a loud sound. Well, I, I think they're always just trying to, um, each, each member kind of ups the, the volume on their gear because, so they can hear each other, you know, hear themselves. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I'm sure Lou can't hear himself at all. So, yeah. you know, he keeps turning out the sound of the bass. So then, you know, Jay <laughs> makes the guitar that much louder. Yeah. And Murph just, you know, Murph is just Murph, I guess. He's just back there yeah. doing his best. Yeah. Playing pretty loud. I mean, he's a pretty hard hitter. Yes. Yeah. So the band, they go on tour. And what they, apparently, according to the movie, they have a van that's not very reliable. So on their first day on their tour, the van breaks down. And before this, apparently, the members of the band all sort of got along. Jay, Jay was a very weird guy, a very big personality, which I found interesting because Jay is a man also of very few words. His interviews, his interviews notoriously are very monosyllabic. <laughs> it's usually just yes and no, and he has very little to say. Well, hello, Mr. Critical Acclaim. How you doing? Good, how are you? Uh, I've been better, not too bad. Really? 
I, I feel your pain. In the meantime, we are going to watch Start Chopping right now, I believe. Aren't we going to see that video? Anything you want to say about this song, video? Hmm, I really don't. Uh, you could say here it is. Now we have our fabulous video, Start Chopping. <laughs> People ever compare you to Neil Young? Constantly. Apparently, Lou Barlow was very similar. He was apparently more quiet than Jay. But as they start going on tour on this very first road trip, the van breaks down in Iowa. Is that right? Idaho. Idaho. And they're all stuck with each other for a week. And this is the moment where the band starts becoming more combative with each other. Jay just decides he hates Lou and just starts making fun of everything that Lou says. Or was it Murph? kind of like blinked for a second and then it felt like Jay was jumping on Murph as well. Is that right? I think Jay is, you know, just one of those guys that maybe because he's just a musical genius or he's a, a smart person that he kind of to establish that, you know, he's a leader. I think he just kind of nitpicks on the other guys as his kind of way of, you know, that, you know, he's the one in charge yeah. and, you know, and everyone else is a little bit beneath them, but you know, I don't think none of these guys have were great at communicating. Maybe Murph was okay at it, but yeah, <laughs> these guys just like kind of bottled up their feelings and until it explodes, basically. Yeah, there's so. tons of tension. I I had gotten a firsthand account of them playing a show in Buffalo back in the day, and they had stayed at the house of some folks that were kind enough to host our band as well when we were playing in Buffalo and they would sort of tell stories about bands that would stay there. And he said the three of them uh, never talked to each other one time. Like they would just sit in a room, all three of them, and it was the most awkward thing to host this band. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, in, pre in previous accounts, it had been said that Lou had gotten a girlfriend. And according to Jay... Once Lou got a girlfriend, he gained confidence enough to start talking and voicing his own opinions. And so he went from saying nothing to being very opinionated about just about everything. And apparently that came to a head over time as the rest of the members of the band were just tired of, of Lou always voicing his opinion and also being very difficult to be on the road with. There was no communication. He, Lou said himself, you know, he would go play the show. He'd keep his head down. He'd play. He'd get done with the show and, and he'd, he'd walk out and people would compliment him and he wouldn't believe him. He, he was like, no, no, we weren't very good. And he wouldn't talk to his band. So, I mean, obviously what's going to happen? You're going to, uh, that's a, that's a mental head case right there. Correct. Yeah. So then that very fateful show, I forget what town it was in, but that very fateful show they're playing and Lou decides that he wants to be very annoying on stage. And for some song, he only plays one note and he tries to play as annoyingly as possible. And uh, Jay gets upset because Lou's trying to throw the show. And I think Lou is trying to throw the show to annoy everybody. And so they get into a big fight on stage. You know, wreck the song and try, just trying to annoy us, basically. And I was like, kept thinking, wow, Murph's going to hit him, I think. This is going to be bad. This is not going to end well.
As you said, we don't know if that was the actual end of the band, but it certainly was a a bookmark in the chapter of like the end of the band. Yeah, it's a very typical like thing you did in the late eighties, early nineties, instead of like talking over talking about stuff and yeah. trying to hash things out. You just do some passive aggressive weird stage antic to annoy everybody. Yeah. <laughs> until, you know, you know, everything everybody gets just so pissed off that they finally just start shouting at each other. Yeah. But you know, it takes like several months to just let that build up until it just explodes. Yep. So the documentary even mentioned that Murph during that time they were in Idaho had some kind of weird freak out where he just started destroying everything in the hotel room. Yeah. So yeah. So like all of them were going through craziness because they wouldn't talk to each other. That's correct. It. Yeah. And I imagine in those early tours that they all had to stay in the same hotel room. I'm sure there was no budget for yep. multiple fancy rooms and fancy buses. And Absolutely all that. not. They were notorious for every place that they played. They were not allowed to play there ever again because they were so loud and annoying. And it's funny. They treated their music not as like fun. They went in there to assault people. That was their job. Which is funny that their music was still very melodic. Correct. You know, very... You know, there is accessibility in that music. Yes. But still. You can always tell that Jay always seemed to have these these ambitions to, you know, take the music, make it underground sounding, but still, you know, have some of the, the pop sensibilities to everything. Yeah. So the days are numbered for Olu Barlow, and he gets kicked out of the band. And uh, they didn't mention this in the documentary, but... Uh, it has been said that the way that they kicked him out was that they told Lou Barlow that they were breaking the band up. So Jay and Murph walked over to Lou's house and Murph did the talking because he's the only one who knew how to talk to people. And he just kindly said, Hey, you know, that was a really rough tour. I think we're just going to hang it up. And Lou goes, okay, fine. And then they get another bass player and then they go on tour somewhere else. <laughs> Continuing on as Dinosaur Jr. So was this all, this must have been after they recorded Bug. It was. So did did Lou go on tour with Dinosaur for Bug? After, the, after they recorded Bug? I that's don't, like, I kind of don't think that they did. Yeah. So the, yeah, that's kind of where like it gets murky in the documentary. They kind of just skip around that a little bit. But Pardon me if I butt in for a little backstory. Bug is the title of their third album released in 1988. Uh, this was at a time that the tensions were very high within the members of the original lineup of Dinosaur Jr. They had just released probably their most famous record up to that point, You're Living All Over Me, and uh, a creative triumph for Dinosaur Jr. Uh, at this point, they had been having troubles on the road, personal-wise, and so they put out Bug, which is a difficult album for everybody involved. It seems that this is when Jay was really taking the reins. Not that he didn't have the reins the whole time, but the bass player Lou was pulling back huge. So tensions were high, but it didn't seem to be a problem for them to continue on touring, even if they didn't like each other. So uh, they did say that they did play some of these songs, but not many of them. They found many of them in the original days. They found the songs challenging to play live. Uh, 20 years later, 2008, they sort of did an anniversary tour for that album where they had Henry Rollins come along with them and uh, interview the band. Anyways, they were forced to relearn many of the songs, and lo and behold, turns out they were pretty happy with the material. 
even though they had bad memories. So that's a good thing. Carry on. Yeah. So when they fought on stage, I, I kind of thought that was before they recorded Bug. Hmm. But I yeah. could be wrong. Well, he certainly was there to record Bug because even though he contributed nothing to the music, this was the point in time where Lou decides he's going to put all of his musical creativity into another group called Sebado. So when Bug comes around, he has no songs to add, whereas previously he'd, he'd contributed a couple of songs. Great tunes, by the way. Uh, for this, he did nothing. Uh, he didn't sing lead on anything except for the song Don't. which he repeatedly sings, Why Don't You Like Me, over and over again. Uh, notoriously, he did one take, and afterwards, uh, at the completion, was coughing up blood. So it goes to show how much he was having a terrible time in the band. And so if you ever listen to that song, it will uh, sonically give you the idea on how much turmoil Lou Barlow was going through at that time. Yeah, I felt that Dinosaur could have just stayed together and kept going, but um, what am I thinking? Good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I think as soon as as soon as Lou kind of started messing around, and you know, is is one thing that yeah, okay, they they didn't talk to you, they don't talk to each other, and they don't really like each other. But as long as they're performing on stage and everything's sounding good, didn't matter to the three of them. Yes, but as soon as he messed up with the music a little bit, kind of, kind of, you know, hurting the integrity of the band. That's when you know, that was the 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 line that could not be crossed. Sure. So that's why they had to kind of break up. Yeah. Very true. Because you know they've been playing together now for what seventeen years <laughs> since they got back together, and you know I don't think they're like friends or anything, but. Yeah, you know they they always just go on stage and they they play they play the songs and yeah they contribute to the albums and yeah well as I said they grew up and they also you know J Jay tried to continue Dinosaur Junior for four more albums before calling it a day and in that time that's when they got their MTV notice but with Feel the Pain. Which was directed by Spike Jones, who directed other such amazing videos as uh, Sabotage and a couple from Daft Punk, and he did a Pavement video. What else? He did tons of videos. He was the guy. He was the guy. Yeah, yeah he was before he started doing uh, movies. Yeah, being John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich was this big one. Yeah, bunch of other. Bunch of stuff that I can't think of. I don't know what he's doing anyway. <laughs> but uh, that video is uh, that video shows the band driving through New York City playing golf, which is pretty amusing. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Yeah, Jay is a um, apparently a pretty good athlete. So you know he yeah he's really, a big skier, really snowboarder. Skiing, yeah, 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 and really into golf. Yeah, and skateboarding. Skateboarding. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't peg him as a, an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. But 
when you consider, you know, Jay Maskus, as we said, he plays all the instruments. He knows how to play drums. He started as a drummer in Deep Wound, uh, went on to play guitar, and in in later recordings, he basically plays everything himself. I'm pretty sure that's what Green Mind is. Green Mind is the first major label record after Lou Barlow's departure from the first three records and from the band. He puts out Green Mind, and Jay initially wanted to put together a large band with two drummers, I think two guitar players, and a bass player. So they, they end up recording one song for that, The Wagon. The Wagon. Yeah, The Wagon, which is uh, sonically just a little bit different than everything else on the record. Like that, that was their first single, and I think they tried it maybe live and it wasn't quite working. So they pared it back down to a trio. They kept Murph, but according to uh, Jay Maskus, Murph just wasn't up for the task of playing drums. So he only plays drums on two or three songs on the record. Uh, Jay Maskus ends up playing everything else. Let me take an editor's note step back here. In other interviews that I've heard from Murph, he's actually said that Jay kind of wrote the album by himself, as he normally does. And when Jay writes, he has the guitar parts and the drum parts already sort of written out in his head. That's It's the merge of those two instruments that is the main drive for when Jay is writing songs. Anyways, he gives these songs to Murph in a very short amount of time and basically tells him, we've already have our studio time booked. And I forget exactly how long it was. Might've been something like three weeks or a month or something like that. And Murph says that he needs a bit of time to absorb the material. So, you know, it's not that Murph couldn't do it. He's a great drummer. But in this particular instance, he was not uh, able to get all the songs learned and the amount of time that was allotted to him. So carry on. But apparently that's part of the ethos of Dinosaur Jr. is that Jay controls everything. So because he's a drummer, when he writes his songs, he has a very specific drum pattern in mind. So there's, in the rehearsal room, two drum sets. So Jay can play the drums and then Murph can learn to play exactly what Jay wants him to play. Yeah, I mean, you being a drummer, what do you think of Jay's drumming ability? I mean, I think it's great. It's it's appropriate for the music that he's doing. Correct. Yeah. It seems like he has a kind of a unique style. Definitely. Um, a lot of toms, a lot of just kind of all over the place, kind of busy. Yeah. 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 But because he comes from a, a percussion background, you know, his songs can be very dynamic and rhythmic. And so that's, I think, part of what, why the music sounds the way it does is because he does have these drum lines really pegged out as he's writing the guitar riffs. Like he's sort of hearing the whole, the whole song in one big swoop. But his drumming is great. He plays with another band called Witch. So, you know, it's a little bit different, more sludgy. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, going back to Green Mind, I, I don't know how you feel about the, the way that album sounds, but to me it sounds really thin. Yeah, I think it right? sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm you a, know, part of it, because Lou's not on there. Yes. Uh, you know, the bass is hardly, you can hardly hear it. There's no bass, pretty much. Yeah, it's really buried in the midst. Yeah. The drums are really out front. They are, with, and... Keep in mind, Jay's playing the drums most of the time. So <laughs> there's there's no band feel anymore. 
Correct. You've got Jay going in. He knows the songs. He plays the drums, and then he plays the bass over top of that, and then he plays the guitar over top of that. So he's layering all these things so you don't have that chemistry of three people in a room playing music together, which, you know, we come to find out is really what's great about that band. Yep. You know, they started very early, and because Jay had such a loud sound, it was up to Lou and Murph, the other two members, the bass and the, the drums, for them to really work together to find something that would cut through this very aggressive guitar sound with all this volume. And so the two of them played really super well together. Once Lou Barlow had to leave the band, uh, it really left a hole in Murph. Murph kind of mentioned this, and I never thought about that before, is, is that Jay being in control of the group would be like, okay, this guy's going to play bass with us now. And Murph would be like, I don't necessarily think that that's the right guy, but he wouldn't. He, he didn't have any say in the whole thing, so. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, Murph always seemed like he was just kind of almost like a hired gun, if anything. Yeah, you know? he was feeling so, that way for yeah. sure. Yeah. So we get basically two records. We have Green Mind, and then the record after that, which I think was kind of really the first one to, it, it brought Dinosaur Jr. to our attention. Yes. Right? So they got were getting enough buzz at that point. Well, Nirvana really broke through at, by that point, right? Exactly. And yep. so, you know, Dynasty Jr. was kind of riding that alternative wave that was hitting everything, you yep. know? like So MTV at the time decided they were going to make grunge and alternative music like the new lifestyle sure. right, of the 90s. So Yeah, yeah. But keep in mind, I think Dinosaur Jr. Was, was signed to a major label before Nirvana broke. Correct. So, like, they, they they had been trying to break some bands. I think the first one that really broke through was R.E.M. It was, like, the first alternative college rock band that started to have some singles. So that gave them the idea that, well, perhaps if we find some bands, and they tried it, Husker Du put out yep. some stuff, Replacements, they tried. Um, but nothing nothing ever really broke through until until Nirvana. I mean, Jane's addiction a little bit, but they're from LA, so there's yeah, yeah. Well, like you know, they they all can't come from Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Warner Brothers at yes. the time was the one that would take chances on all these bands and like let them, you know, develop with totally. several albums before you know they kind of would break big. Yep. So they would actually have the only one of the only labels that had the patience to you know kind of develop these bands. Yeah, and that's why Jane's addiction went to Warner Brothers and, yep. Yep. you know, and Flaming Lips. Yeah. And so. Built to Spill was on Warner Brothers up until just a few years ago. Pretty astonishing. They yeah. don't seem like a major label band, but they have been the whole time very secretly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of them just kind of followed the, the kind of the REM cycle where, you know, you, you kind of built up your following through a whole bunch of kind of the smaller label and then eventually jump to jump to the one of the Warner Brothers yep. affiliated yep. Uh, labels and and kind of yeah and kind of like slowly kind of take a um, build up your popularity yep yeah and they were following the perfect trajectory they got into SST Records uh, problem with SST Records as has been reported before uh, they weren't very good at paying their bands their record royalties so. Uh, I'm sure that there was some legal disputes and Jay's always been pretty good at making sure he gets paid business wise. He, yeah. Jay, you know. Jay really 
kind of knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he wasn't haphazardly, you know, <laughs> he, he was the one, yeah. He was the one that was booking all the shows and, yeah. you know, he's the doing one the artwork that, apparently. Yeah. He was, he was the major driver, yeah. you know, so yeah, he had the vision. So after SST records, that's, you know, that, that was the launching point that then you got the Warner brothers days. You've got a couple more records with, uh, with original drummer Murph, who after the Lollapalooza tour, which is where the first time you and I saw Dinosaur Jr., no? That's correct. In Chicago? Yeah. That was the uh, the Lollapalooza where it was uh, this little band uh, called Rage Against the Machine opened. It's the first time. Right? First time we ever heard of them. Heard of them. Yeah. 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 Then it was Babes in Toyland, Front 242, Arrested Development, Fishbone, Dinosaur Jr., then Alice in Chains, and Primus. There you go. Quite an MTV quite, alternative yeah. lineup right there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall too many people in the audience for Dinosaur Jr. It no. was about half full. Yeah, yeah. So this was back when they were a touring festival and playing pretty much amphitheaters. Yep. Which seem to be kind of somewhat of a dying breed right now. But, yep. Um, so like we would we would sit in kind of those bleachers. Yeah. Like in the concrete amphitheater you know, reserved seating area. Yeah. And then you'd have like the low roof that overhangs that part of the reserve seating. Mm -hmm. And like the sound would just be awful. Right? Yeah. It's, it's just like <laughs> bouncing all over the place. Absolutely. Uh, Dinosaur Jr. Notoriously a very band, to, very difficult band to mix in the first place. But what I did appreciate about them playing in an amphitheater is because they already have so much sound on the stage from their amplifiers. Like you can kind of hear they're amplifiers. Like normally in, a, in an amphitheater, there's a microphone on every guitar player's amp. And that sound is coming through the main speakers, like your main sound system. So typically they say, they, they tell the band to play as quiet as possible on stage so that they can have a better opportunity to mix everything through the main speakers. But Dinosaur Jr. brings 50 million amps. And so like the sound that you generally hear is kind of like the sound that's coming off the stage. So... So I kind of like that because it, it, it makes them sound different. It yeah. It's a unique thing. So, Yeah. Do, do you remember anything in particular about that show? I remember him playing just like Kevin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's the only thing that I, I remember that the crowd actually kind of got somewhat excited about. Yeah. And but I, we were driving there. I remember you talking about Dinosaur Jr. Like, oh, you're really going to like these guys. And they were cool. Like they did some solos, but they didn't make an impression. Yeah. I mean, you really have to be like in a, like a club that, you know, like a 700 person club to yeah. kind of get that full dinosaur experience. Yeah. With just like, just the, just the crazy, how loud they yeah. can generate sound. Yeah. Just, they, they really move the air. Correct. As they say. Yeah. You definitely feel it for at least a day afterwards. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> My my wife and I decided to go see Dinosaur Jr. when they did a anniversary show for their first record, the self-titled Dinosaur record, and they did ten nights in a row in New York City. And so we went to one of those, and and uh, my wife was like, "Let's get down in front." And I was like, Are "You sure? That's a good idea." And so we went down there, and um, yes, we could not hear for three days. But anyway, so. So the story goes, the band breaks up and uh, Lou and, and Jay hate each other. And, and we pretty much thought this band was never going to get back together. Correct. Yeah. And interestingly enough, so Jay's put out a couple of records calling it Jay Maskus in the Fog. And he 
is having Mike Watt play bass with him, famous bass player from the Minutemen, later on to play with the Stooges. Uh, and somehow through all of this, they, they hook up with the Ashton brothers. The Ashton brothers are the genesis of the band, the Stooges, you know, famously Iggy Pop's first band. And they get together and they start playing some of these Stooges songs. And I'm not sure why, but it's, it's kind of Jay's doing that put that whole thing together, which created the bedrock for, I guess, Lou Barlow to be invited to come up and sing a tune with them because they didn't have anybody filling Iggy's spot. So they did some of these shows and uh, with the original Ashton Brothers, Mike Watt on bass and uh, Jay Maskus. So indirectly, you can also thank Jay Maskus for bringing the reunion of the original Stooges back together with Iggy Pop and the two Ashton brothers and Mike Watt on bass, which was pretty amazing to see that whole thing. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So was was Jay playing guitar in that band? Right. He he was for whatever they called it, Ashton, Ashton, okay. Maskus, Watt. And th I think maybe they just did three shows or something. It was kind of a one-off thing. But it got the Ashton brothers playing music together and then somehow Iggy Pop found out about it and like called him up and said, hey, why don't we give this a go? <laughs> and um, the rest is history from there. And then on the other side, it brings Lou, Lou Barlow and Jay Maskus back into a room uh, being on stage with each other. The story was there, there was some, I, I believe there was a show like later on, and, and it's outlined in the, the book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, where they sort of tell the history of Dinosaur Jr. And it sounds like there's no way that Dinosaur Jr. is ever going to get back together. These guys all hate each other. They don't know how to communicate. Lou Barlow is just harvesting all this anger, which is giving him the opportunity to write a lot of really great music through Sebado. And later on, he's in folk implosion. And so he's just have all these like, like love letters to Jay and, and how much he hates him and how much he misses him all at the same time. And, and, um, you know, the experience that Lou was going through. But uh, in the end, uh, the band gets back together. J. Lou Murph, they, get, they they all get phone calls. I don't know who initiates it, but... Well, it was, I believe, the record label or... who I think oh. it was Matador. Is it Matador? I believe it's, it's Merge. Ma Merge. Or Merge, yeah. Merge decided they were going to... They bought the rights to the SST records. Discography, nice. Yeah, so... Good. So they bought the rights and they were like, we're, we're going to re-release these. So, uh, you know, I think obviously the band had to kind of communicate, you know, mm. you know, new contracts and all the logistics of all that. And they're like, yeah. well, why don't we do some reunion shows? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it sounded like it was just going to be a one-off thing. And yeah, 17 years later. Yeah. <laughs> 17 later, how many, we got four new records out of them now, two? Four or five. Yeah. And uh, they're good. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they always have two or three really, you know, kind of unique songs that, you know, and, and they continue to play, you know, one or two uh, off of these new albums when they play live now. Mm -hmm. But it's still mostly kind of the older stuff. Yeah. But, um you know, you know, they definitely seem to be getting along and, you know, the tunes are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, they've all had good life experiences to uh, sort of bring them back together and uh, 
the coping skills to uh, be in a band with somebody that might not be your favorite person in the entire world. Might have a different <laughs> view. But like Jay, what, he found like Indian... Yeah, some kind of Buddhism? Yeah, some kind of spiritualism. Yeah. So he kind of went on a journey. Yeah. After Dinosaur, he disbanded Dinosaur. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then Lou just got out all of his, all of his wiggles with all of his other bands and, you know, got a girlfriend and um, I think cleaned up his life a little bit. Yeah. Seemed like he was having some uh, drug dependencies at certain times. So yeah, going back to Subodo, so you know, so so I think he started Subodo even before he was kicked out of Dinosaur Junior, right? Yeah, for sure. And so he did he they have a lot of albums. Yeah, too many. Uh, way, way too many. <laughs> Very long albums too, from what I recall. Yeah. But uh Well, cuz the 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 whole point for him is that he wanted it to be a reaction to what Dinosaur Junior was, which was Jay Maskus being in control of every little downbeat and upbeat of what Dinosaur Jr. does. As a reaction to that, Lou Barlow wanted to create a band that had three songwriters or two songwriters. It started out with two songwriters. It was Eric Gaffney and Lou Barlow. Uh, and as they matured on, they picked up uh, Jason Lowenstein and all three of them could play all the instruments, more or less. Guitar, bass, and drums. Lou, not so much of a drummer, but the other two guys could play drums. So whoever wrote the song could front the band and sing the song, and then somebody else would be able to play the bass and somebody else play the drums. Yes. They did a they did a reunion of the original lineup of those three at Sound Primavera about 10 years ago or something. It's pretty cool, just playing all the old stuff. We sort of woke to Sebado when Eric Gaffney was out of the group, like Bake Sale. Mm, yeah, yeah, Bake Sale. Mm -hmm. It's a great album. Super great album. Yeah, yeah. It's it's my favorite. It, it's their it's their best tunes live, I think. Yeah, yeah. So Sebado Three had the famous song "Freed Pig." Freed Pig. So yeah. that's kind of the what the song about Jay. Yep. What you're hearing here is the song Freed Pig, written by Lou Barlow, originally appearing on the Sebado album, Sebado 3. Lou Barlow wrote this song about his relationship with Jay Mascus. It's a very raw and kind of uncomfortable song. However, the version you're hearing is a cover by the band The Breeders. Now there's loads of irony in The Breeders covering this song. For one, Kim Deal, who's the leader of the band, started the Breeders because her songs weren't being played by her main band, the Pixies. That's why she left and started the Breeders. Kind of a similar way that Lou started Sebado to feature his songs that weren't being performed by Dinosaur Jr., his other main band. Not to mention both the Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. are from the state of Massachusetts. Coincidence? I think so. Furthermore, this version we're listening to, the song about Jay Mascus, was produced by Jay Mascus for the Breeders. This means Jay must have listened to this song hundreds of times in the studio to help make the recording. Talk about therapy. Carry on. And I thought I remember hearing a story that, you know, after Jay was kind of doing his own solo uh, stuff, that uh, he actually would cover Freed Pig. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> And I, and it just sounded like at the time, um, they they actually started showing up at each other's shows and mm -hmm. probably you know, 
you know, not just kind of say, Hey, you know, yeah. as guys would do, <laughs> not yeah. really talk about it, kind of pretend it never happened. Yeah, totally. <laughs> just say, like, just hey, talk about it to the people. Hey, hey uh, Jay's here. Yeah. He's here. Oh. Yeah. We're just hanging out. You know, you know, it's very on par for the 90s of these vans just breaking up and, yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> Communicating with each other through songs. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pardon my interruption. I wanted to bring up something that Gene and I neglected to talk about. As previously discussed, Lou was kicked out of the band after their third record, Bug, and then Dinosaur Jr. recorded four more records for Warner Brothers. Now, who played bass? Well, as I said, the first record, Green Mind, was mostly Jay playing most things. But they made this pitch on MTV while promoting the album. Now, right now, there's only two members of Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. You lost your bassist, right? Mm -hmm. And we are going to give you a fax number where you can call and audition to, to be the new bassist in Dinosaur Jr. That's all coming up in the second 60 of 120 minutes. Isn't that just cute? Can you imagine a band these days going on MTV to record their next bass player? I love it. To be clear, Dinosaur Jr. did not actually get their next bass player from this MTV contest. Instead, Jay recruited Mike Johnson, who ended up playing bass throughout the remainder of Dinosaur Jr.'s tenure at Warner Brothers before Jay retired the name Dinosaur Jr. altogether. Mike Johnson is from Oregon originally. He played guitar in the punk band Snake Pit, not the one that Slash started after Guns N' Roses. No relation. So Mike Johnson formed a musical relationship with Screaming Trees as they were passing through Eugene, Oregon, and Mike Johnson set them up a show. One of the opening bands failed to play, and so Snake Pit opened up. That's when he formed a musical relationship with Mark Lanigan, partnership, if you will, and ended up being Mark's right-hand man for many of Mark's solo records. He produced, wrote, and performed with them as a guitarist. Back in Dinosaur Jr., as they were setting out to do their Green Mind tour, the first album from Warner Brothers, without a bass player, they borrowed Screaming Trees bass player Van Connor, opening up for Jane's Addiction in 1991. Now, once the Trees needed Van and Mark back to do their work, Van recommended to Jay that he check out Mike Johnson. When Jay called Mike and asked him to consider joining the band, Mike said, I don't know how to play the bass. And Jay responded, it's just four strings. So, Mike joins the band, and the rest is history. Apparently, Mike Jensen was asked to be in the recently released Dinosaur Jr. documentary, which he is notably absent from, but Mike just failed to respond to the producers. No bad blood. He just didn't think the documentary was coming out. Apparently, it was 10 years in the making. Mike Johnson can currently be found living with his wife in France. As for bass player Van Connor, he tragically passed away January 17th, 2023 from an extended illness that resulted in pneumonia. Rest in peace. Carry on. And uh, yeah, since Dinosaur Jr.'s gotten back together, I've seen him a bunch. Yes. Yes. I've seen him way more times than I saw him, you know, before they got together. Yeah. And I think the only song they've continuously played at each concert was just like heaven mm -hmm. as a standard yeah of of dinosaur jr which is a bummer <laughs> i don't need to hear that song anymore <laughs> crowd, yeah, well, crowd the, goes wild though yeah well these days they play the other hits too they play you know, they, they always, always play feel your pain yeah they feel out there 
um, the wagon. So the wagon sounds a lot better yeah. with Lou on bass because he's really giving it his all. Totally. I mean, I mean, Lou's bass playing is very unique, Super. right? He's just like, he's just wailing on that thing like a guitar. Yep. And he's Came just from kinda, his hardcore days. Yeah. And he's going all over the fretboard and just like, yeah. just, but he provides so much more melody to the bass lines. Mm-hmm. So like the wagon, you know, sounds a lot better. It's like a nice full sound. Totally. Yeah. There's no one who plays bass like that. No, no, yeah. not at all. It's kind of right in between, you know, like if you took the funk out of, let's say Motown playing, <laughs> but then like threw it into a hardcore sense, like that's kind of what he's doing. It's all picked. There's a lot of chords, which no one, you know, the bass world, rarely do you hear chords. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and he generally looks like he's having a great time out there. I mean, he's just like all over the place and he mumbles to the crowd about something in between songs. And yeah, I just saw them out in in Portugal at Porto at the Sound Primavera Festival. And I saw him. He was just hanging out. He was getting ready to go see Slow Dive outside of the uh, the arena where people are just checking their tickets and going inside. But my keen eye was like, hey, there's Lou Barlow. So, and I didn't obviously want to talk to him, but then my wife made me go say hello (laughs) and took a very nice picture and he was a very nice man. So there you go. Now you got your dinosaur junior. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else we, uh, any other facts that we didn't think about? Oh, you know, I guess one. You got any trivia for me? I always want to do this with everybody's, um, can you, uh, can you name the top five Spotify Dinosaur Junior songs. Top five Dinosaur Junior songs. Uh, well, the, feel, I'm gonna say "Feel the Pain." That, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, um, I'm gonna say "Start Shopping." Yeah, number two. So I'm, far, so good. I'm gonna say "Just Like Heaven." Yeah, number three. <laughs> <laughs> um, after that, is it out there? No, no. It's is actually, it the wagon? No. What is it? Um, it's um, Freak Scene. Freak Scene. Which yeah, I think obvious. is very appropriate. It should have been obvious. Yeah. And then the last one, another old song. Another old song? Yeah. Uh, is it... What's the first song uh, off of Living All Over Me? Yeah, Little Furry Things. Little Furry you Things? You got it. Nice. Yep. So, yeah, I think for, for Dinosaur Jr., Spotify Top 5 is very accurate. Yeah. But there's that weird thing that happened where in Japan, about five years ago, all of a sudden, one of their songs that was a B-side, not a B-side, but an album track off of, I think, Without a Sound, became a huge hit. And nobody could figure out why. But it turned out like the song appeared for a very like short period of time on a Japanese TV show. And that little moment catapulted their popularity in Japan for whatever reason. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Just like me and along with apparently everybody else, like after like the success of Without Sound, um, they really fell off the face of the earth. Like they went from like Feel the Pain, which was like, you know, all over MTV and it was actually, you know, kind of somewhat of a radio hit. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, they just couldn't, yeah, Recreate. use that as a as a, a springboard for yep. anything else, and I think that's kind of what happened to all alternative music at the time. It just went from like MTV played the hell out of it, and then all of a sudden they just stopped. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it was about the time MTV was kind of like not really starting to focus more on their TV shows. Yeah, than their 
their um, videos. But not not before um, the whole like Limp Bizkit and that era of aggressive Correct. rock. Yeah, that was, that was <clears throat> the, uh, the, I guess you could say alternative officially died at Woodstock 99. So that was kind of like <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that period of time, right? Mm-hmm. I think I think uh, that was around ninety eight, ninety nine. Those, those yeah. albums, yeah, around those. Yeah, that's when Pavement hung it up. They knew. Yep. Yeah. I mean, how can you compete with Limpets? No. Nope. Corn. Why would you want to? Why would you want to be in the same <laughs> arena as them? Now, have you seen Jay Solo? I did see Jay Solo. He did an acoustic show. He did an acoustic show. I saw him in Madison at the Annex. I think I saw, actually, I saw him again at the High Noon. And he played Mazzy Star's Fade Into You, hmm. which was really cool. Great tune. Yeah, great tune. Yeah. Have, have you seen him? I'd have not. I, it was probably a phase in my life where I kind of just didn't listen a lot of times to Junior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the solo years. Yeah. So I'm with you. Yeah. 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 I remember going to see them in 2005 when they, you know, got first got back together. And uh, yeah, that was the only time uh, my wife Margaret went with me to uh, a club yeah. ver- version of Dancer Junior, and ah. has not had any desire to go back. No, <laughs> <laughs> a little too loud for her. Yeah, a little, see, see. you know, it's a little, it's a little more punk rocky, right? Yeah, you know, those older songs. Same as like, yeah. yeah. But I did get tickets for my sister to go see. Dinosaur Jr. in Minneapolis, and I went up there and saw her with it, and uh, you know, turned her on to Dinosaur oh, Jr. That's cool. Yeah, it was her. Uh, it was my gift to her for graduating college in the Twin Cities. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. That first tour, they didn't. They only played the old songs. Yeah, it was awesome. And, yeah, but then you know, as and they, they mixed it up like wildly every yep. night. So yeah, any night you could get anything. Yep. Which is my one complaint about seeing them these, these days. It's like these days, half of the set is those hits yeah, that you, we you just know. mentioned on, on the top Spotify yep. things. We always get those. We always get two songs from Lou, from, or at least a song that Lou sings. Correct. Which some of them have been pretty good songs. I actually like The Garden, is the, the song that's off their last album. Yeah? Yeah. So have you heard them play that one? I think I have. I think yeah, he's, so, he's been playing like, that. So like, yeah, that's kind of a more of a traditional like subado song yeah yeah it's a little bit more kind of quiet melodic and uh the cool thing is that jay plays bass on that one so like when they play live he uh yeah breaks out the bass and he totally overpowers it's like oh my god that's a lot of bass yeah so but uh but yeah 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 the shows now is interesting to see lou playing the you know the the songs he you know, didn't record with Dinosaur Jr. Yeah. But, and he plays, you know, he pay, plays the hell out of them. Yeah. You know? It kind of <laughs> adds that Lou Barlow yeah, thing that was missing the whole goes, time. Yeah. No diss to Mike Johnson. Yeah. Mike Johnson. He was fine. Yeah. That's, I don't know. Didn't really put a stamp on The most boring name. Yeah. You could ever have. It's impossible to find out what he's doing these days. <laughs> oh, I bet. 
you know, the coolest thing about that documentary is just seeing, you know, them perform in the early days. Yeah. And just how cool Jay looked. Totally. Right? Yeah. Like, he was like, it's kind of this tall, lanky guy with long hair and just yeah. always just jamming and just like all over the place. Totally. Yeah. You were saying, uh, it was funny, you, you went to the show and there was a bunch of kids, like younger kids, that are sort of trying to recreate those like grunge mosh pit audience Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like that's kind of this growing trend of like the 20-somethings, you know, totally missed out on yeah. all things 90s. Yeah. You know, they weren't even born in the 90s. Totally. <laughs> so, like, so like, you know, they so see old. these old videos of like, you know, back in the day of Nirvana of like, you know, yeah. You know, body surfing and all that. So, yeah, they try to do that, that a little bit. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Until it got a little bit too annoying when there'd always be somebody crashing. <laughs> crashing. Be like four body surfers. And, you know, they eventually get to you and then they just fall right on top of you. Yeah. On top of you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, it was fun a lot. Yeah. So, anyways, I can smell these ribs. How about we pull these out and eat them? Yeah. Let's give it a shot. Awesome. Let's do it. Cheers, Gene. Cheers. Yeah. We are sitting in front of these huge beef back ribs. Um, and then also, I we'd mentioned that we were going to put some beans in there. So I did make uh, some Bush's baked beans. And the thing is, is this weekend has been uh, birthday party central. My son turned six, so we had a big bash. And I made a bunch of burgers and brats and and hot dogs, and we had a couple hot dogs laying over, left over. And so I said, hey, how about I cut up those hot dogs and make beans and weenies? And the thing is, I thought, well, maybe that's overkill. But then I thought, perfect. Dinosaur Jr. Live is a bit overkill. So I think <laughs> the combination of all this stuff is just about perfect. You got these huge caveman-y looking huge ribs. Uh, which, okay, so you ever made ribs before? Yes. Uh, the ribs are, have been fairly easy to not screw up. Yeah. <laughs> it's that brisket that gives me the issues. Mm -hmm. Just that big slab of beef. Very delicate. Yeah, but you're you're putting it in, not an oven, but you, you said you have like a ceramic... Yes, yeah, I have like those Kamado ceramic grills. Okay. Like the green egg is the, the most famous of it. I have a different version of that, but yeah. same concept. Gotcha. Just requires a lot of patience, which I don't seem to have anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I understand completely. Um, so these basically are cooked in the oven. I got up this morning, the second that I woke up, and I said, oh my God, I should have put these in a long time ago. Um. This is what you do. I got these at uh, Costco. So I got a, two huge racks of them. Uh, we only cooked one of the racks. I made a, a rub of salt, pepper. I used probably two tablespoons of each, a tablespoon of garlic powder, a tablespoon of onion powder, two tablespoons of smoked paprika, which they say is really important because it'll give this smokiness to it. And since we're just cooking them in the oven, 
that's the way to go. So I put all that stuff together, mixed it up, and um, it's up to you. You could put some cumin in there. You could put some oregano in there if you want. Uh, but the traditionalists of the barbecue world will say that you want to go less with the different flavors. Usually, like a super hardcore guy wants to taste the meat, so they'll just put salt and pepper. Now, I I like flavors, so I'm, I'm cool with putting other things in there too. So the paprika, the garlic salt, I mean, the garlic powder, I'm sure it's going to be good. Um, so then what you do is you remove the membrane. The membrane is this thin layer of skin that sort of covers where the fat is, and you need to tear that off before you start cooking it. Um, I think I, I, some people have told me it doesn't really matter all that much, but you will get sort of this, um, you know, chewy extraness that you don't really need. Um, so remove the membrane, set it down bone side down on a pan on like a baking sheet that has some walls because inevitably some fat's going to drip off of this thing. You rub the rub on top of it. And uh, cook it at 250 degrees in the oven, covered with aluminum foil for four hours. And I left it in there. And I didn't look at it one time. Uh, when Once I reached about the uh, two-hour, 50-minute mark, I did remove the aluminum foil and cranked it up on broil to sort of give it a little bit of a crispiness on top. And um, that's where we're at. Did you have a bite yet? Yes, they turned out great. Did they? Nice and juicy and tender. Yeah. So that was the other thing about Dinosaur Jr., right? You had to have the the nice tender inside. Exactly. It's the kind of, it, it took a lot of time. And <laughs> Just like Dinosaur Jr., they had to go through a lot of different phases. They had to go through time. They had to, they had to grow up. And, um... Then they broke down and their tenderness came through and they were able to communicate. And so, um, you know, this otherwise very tough piece of meat became tender and edible in, in the end. I think I'm going to take a bite. See how it is. Mm. Very nice. I think the rub is great. What do you do when you make your ribs? Do you uh, put anything on them? Uh, usually I stick to a very traditional, just like a lot of salt and pepper. Yeah. Just coat, coat it all over, front, back, every which way. Yeah. I haven't actually made a lot of these beef ribs versus the pork ribs. I guess I mainly stuck to baby back ribs. Mm. I do I do like the flavor of the, the beef ribs better, I think. Yeah. Very nice. I mean, the pork pork is just a lot, you know, so so salty. Yeah. I feel like this is uh, this is a little tougher than the pork ribs. Usually, when I make the pork ribs, the meat just falls right off of the bone. But these guys are hanging on. This meat is still a part of part of the bone. Using a knife doesn't seem like the way to do this. I feel like it needs to be picked up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, not so easy. They're, they're a little, be very messy. Yeah. So what's going on with uh, Dinosaur Jr. these days? Do you know, uh, is there any more like Sebado things in the works? Any idea? They just put out a new record, right? By new, like two years ago? Yeah, two years ago, but <clears throat> they had to postpone 
postponed the tour due to the the Omicron variant or whatever variant was at the time. Omicron, 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 Omicron. So yeah, the show I saw a few days ago was uh, over a year postponed. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, I know they recorded the new album with Kurt Vile, and uh, because of COVID, you know, they kind of had to abandon those sessions, and they kind of just piecemealed it. Oh really? There. Yeah. So they really only recorded a few songs with Kurt. Hmm. That's too bad. I saw I saw Dinosaur Junior play in New York City, opening for Kurt Vile, which I thought was weird. That they were the opening band. Oh, really? Yeah. To me, I thought Dinosaur should be the headliner. But no, Kurt Vile's got a whole thing. Tons of people like him. Yeah? Yeah. You like Kurt Vile? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I don't really listen to him much, but I liked the, the album he did with Courtney Barnett. Mm, okay. Yeah. The very stoner rock. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm happy with these ribs. I think it was the right choice. Yeah, you happy with the wieners? The wieners are good. <laughs> Absolutely. They yeah. always brighten up a uh, otherwise, um, you know, boring bush bean. But Bush's Baked Beans, is that Massachusetts? I mean, uh, I guess. What is like? What is your traditional Massachusetts Boston baked bean? What makes it, what gives it its own character? Any idea? It must be the the sauce. I would imagine. Yeah. I'll have to look it up. But, yeah. I'll look it up online. And look it up I did. Turns out what makes a Boston baked bean a Boston baked bean is the distinctive flavor of molasses. In colonial New England, baked beans were traditionally cooked on Saturdays and left in brick ovens overnight. On Sundays, the beans were still hot, allowing people to indulge in a hot meal and still comply with Sabbath restrictions. Brown bread and baked beans, along with frankfurters, continue to be a popular Saturday night staple throughout the region. How about that? Uh, it's also frequently seasoned with salt pork or bacon. However, these days you frequently find vegetarian style without the salt pork or bacon. I've also recently discovered that Jay Mascus is vegetarian, which means that he would not indulge in this meal whatsoever. But I still stand by my idea. The taste of barbecue beef ribs is definitely what Dinosaur Jr. sounds like. Carry on. But I remember looking up like what would be like traditional like Boston food. No. Yeah, I don't know if like maybe it was like clam chowder and I thought I saw like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mind you, this was like over a year ago, so my, my memory is a little foggy. But <laughs> <laughs> Boston cream pie. Naturally. There's a couple of things that were like too obvious, Boston, but but you really know, the, the, the thing is the funny thing is all those foods that you mentioned are all foods that have the word Boston in them, right? <laughs> Isn't there like a Boston clam chowder yeah, and your Boston? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're good at branding. Yeah, <laughs> your Boston baked bean, your Boston cream pie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there is. They're always like you know in the shadows of New York's, so mm. they always kind of have to try to like brand things differently. But, you know, Dance Dream, I guess they're really not a Boston band, so we can't really... True. You know, so... Yeah, they're kind of New York, too. Yeah. Because Jay moved to New York, uh, 
I don't know, he got bored with Ma uh, the Massachusetts area and like moved out and like very early on in their career, like around uh, the you're living all over me era, which is kind of where they befriended Sonic Youth. And Sonic Youth was a major player in getting them in front of some bigger crowds as well. So it was also interesting in the documentary that they kind of implied that Kurt Cobain wanted Jay to join Nirvana. <laughs> That's true. That's a, yeah. That's been said a few times, actually. Yeah, he he asked him to to join the band, which is pretty pretty bold of Kurt to suggest that, seeing how much bigger Dinosaur was at the time. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking like early sub pop Nirvana days, like yeah, Bleach days, right? Yeah, maybe even before. Yeah, I think it was just after they yeah. the, the the guitar player of of the Bleach recording had left. Yeah, so they were down to a three piece and. Who knows that alternate reality or alternate universe? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, but that that, think... that would be too many Type A personalities in that band. Yeah, 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 for sure. It was better to split them up. Yeah, probably, probably not a lot of communication going on in Nirvana either. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, that's cool. I think I want to uh, get messy and sloppy and eat these ribs, and that's not going to sound good on the microphone. So that's let's, correct. Uh, so let's, let's call it a very day. gentle so far. Yeah, totally. Let's uh, <laughs> dig into these things before they get too cold. Uh, thanks for coming over, man. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been look, a blast. Looking forward to the uh, third pavement show that we're going to see tonight. Oh yeah, yeah. So what are they going to break out tonight? I don't know. I felt like yesterday they covered everything that else that they could possibly play. Maybe they'll play a Dinosaur Jr. cover. Hmm. Probably not. They would have to rehearse that. I don't know if they're up for that task. <laughs> Probably not. I've been asking Bob uh, to play No Tan Lines. So fingers crossed, but I doubt it. Anyways. All right. Well, cook on. Have a good lunch, everybody. We'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Peace. That's all, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of This Bank Be Your Food. I really enjoyed having you down. Hope you had something good to eat. We got more food coming. We got more bands coming. I'm working on another episode right now. I've already recorded with uh, the great Andy Moore. He lives out in Madison, Wisconsin. He's played in a bunch of bands, including one of my favorites, the Cork and Bottle String Band, who I used to go see all the time. He reached out to me, and him and I have nerded out about the band NRBQ, you know, on Facebook from time to time, and it always feels like it's to crickets. Feels like the world doesn't know about NRBQ. I mean, those in the know are usually some of the best music fans that you can think of, and if you're a music fan, it's time that you learn about NRBQ. Next week, we're going to talk all about them. By next week... I mean, whenever I dang well feel like getting out another episode. May, it could be a week, could be two weeks, I don't know. Until then, make sure that you're rating this show. Haven't gotten any ratings in some time. You, I'm looking at you. Sir, ma'am, you haven't rated the show yet. I know, come on. We gotta help each other out. Scratch my back! Well, until then, uh, my name is Nathan Palin. I come to you from Brooklyn, New York, a la Janesville, Wisconsin. And this show is This Bank of Beer Food. And you know it's all over because I'm telling you to cook on and rock out. Ciao, ciao.